We've been in this uh, study on the Sermon on the Mount now for uh, several months because we took a break over the month of uh, December. This is actually the 14th message in the series, the 14th message in the series on the greatest sermon ever preached. And while folks are still coming in, and before we read, I'll just mention that we've now arrived at what I would call the body of the sermon, starting last week with verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5. And today we'll read verses 21 through 26. The body of the message, the Beatitudes, we studied for some time, and then those verses about the fact that we are salt and light, that was all introduction, okay? Now we're in the main course, the body of the sermon. And this is all about what the famous German pastor martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer called the extraordinary of the Christian life. The extraordinary of the Christian life. Or we might say it this way, a righteousness that exceeds. As Jesus used that expression in verse 20, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's the key verse. We desperately need to hear and to heed the message of Jesus for this message we're in. No doubt about it, we're in the last days. We have been for some time. But we're in the last days when men are fabricating their own righteousness. As Paul said of the Jews, they're compassing, they're going about, they're fetching a circuit to establish their own righteousness and ignoring the righteousness of God. Ignoring the absolutes of the Word of God. So before we even read the Scripture this morning, I would ask you to honestly face this question in your own heart and mind. Will I fear God and obey Him, or will I fear man? The fear of man brings a snare, the Bible says. Let's say it another way. Ask yourself this. Am I willing to be a fool for Christ's sake, or do I want to be the cool Christian? Do I want to be the cool Christian? Do I want to be the Christian who holds on to the fickle, fallible world with one hand and a reinvented Jesus in the other? Or will I take my stand on the Word of God if it hair lips the devil and hell freezes over? You say, wow, you paint it in some pretty dramatic terms. Yeah, it's just, it's just that way. It really is. With that in mind, let's look at these verses, verses 21 through 26. Words from Christ's lips that startled His hearers. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, Jesus, 
speaks by his own authority, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Reka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire, Gehenna. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, go thy way, first be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Aside from the might, the farthing was the smallest denomination of a coin in the day of Christ. What did Jesus mean here? Well, let's back up just a little bit. With verse 17, Jesus refers to himself for the first time in this sermon. In all the Beatitude verses, in the verses about salt and light, no reference to Christ. But in verse 17, he says, think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And we talked about what that word fulfill means. Up until verse 17, Jesus had been describing and giving a composite picture of a true Christian. He'd been elevating righteousness, lifting a high standard, raising the bar. But only He, of all humans who have ever lived, has fulfilled that standard. Only He has obeyed that. doesn't mean that He completed it necessarily, completed the Old Testament standard, but only he has obeyed it. Therefore, any man who would attain to the righteousness that God demands, any man who would attain to the righteousness that exceeds the self-righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is going to have to deal directly with Christ, not the law. Because Jesus fulfilled the law, because he completely and perfectly obeyed it, The sin question has now become the son question. How can I be righteous? How can I be forgiven? Is all wrapped up in the question, what will I do with Jesus, which is called the Christ? The sin question has become the son question. And now beginning in verse 21 and continuing through the end of the chapter, chapter 5, Jesus gives what I believe is shock treatment. He shocks his audience. Listen carefully. How? By revealing the spiritual intent and nature of the law. His audience, for the most part, had not gotten it before. Six times, six times in this chapter, beginning in the the verses we just read, Jesus says, ye have heard that it hath been said, and then he follows it up a short time later by saying, but I say unto you. Six times. Now, if Jesus says it once, it's important, but when he says something in a pattern six times, we better sit up and take notice. Without a doubt, he is establishing himself here as the authority in a contrasting way. But I say unto you. 
Let me remind you, Jesus not only spoke with authority, He was the authority. He not only conforms, or I should say He doesn't conform to some outward standard, He is the standard. And isn't it interesting, He aims for the heart. Son, give me thine heart. Some of you, I won't ask you to admit it, but you like to, when you get a new book, you like to skip to the end of the book. You know, read the last page. Well, I want you to see how this sermon ends, because I think it'll be helpful at this point. Would you turn to Matthew chapter 7? That's the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. Look at the very last two verses. How does this sermon end? Or what's the reaction to it, I should say? Verse 28, and it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at His doctrine. They were startled. They were rattled at His teaching. For He taught them as one having, say the word, authority, and not as the scribes. The scribes, what they were used to. The scribes could drone on and on in a monotonous voice, and they were as dry as last year's bird's nest. But the reason that Jesus' words carried authority was that His very person was authoritative. And we could give a whole message about how Jesus equated His person with His words. He said, whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my words, of him shall my Father be ashamed. Jesus equated His person with His words. You can't honor one without honoring the other. And so in studying and hearing sermons on and drawing conclusions from this Sermon on the Mount, as we think about it in connection with how Jesus, when He came to this earth, emptied Himself. He made Himself of no reputation, King James says there in Philippians chapter 3. He veiled His glory for a time. Please do not carry that too far. In recent years, we've seen that done. Please don't make the leap and think that Jesus ceased to assert His authority on occasion. Yes, He did veil His glory, but there were times when the veil was parted. Like on the Mount of Transfiguration, no doubt about it. Yes, Jesus did depend upon the Holy Spirit in His ministry, but there were times when He spake on His own authority, and this is one of those times. Let's be careful here. We are on holy ground. We're dealing with the mystery of what is called the hypostatic union of the God-man. Let's not rob Him of His due. Jesus asserts His authority here. He is sure of Himself, away with this poppycock that says, Jesus gradually became self-aware. Oh my. We're dealing with two contexts this morning. So, a little bit different way of approaching the message. I don't want to preach two separate messages. We're dealing with two contexts. The first context is that of verse 21 through the rest of the chapter that takes in these six statements. It hath been said, you have heard that it hath been said, but I say unto you. But then there's the first statement itself. 
where Jesus refers to the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. So I want to take it in that order. I think that'll help us. And we'll understand the rest of the chapter in future messages. First of all, for the rest of the chapter, there is a contrast here. You see that little conjunction, but. You've heard that it's been said by old time, such and such, but I say unto you. Obviously a contrast, okay? That word makes it conclusive. There's a contrast. But what is the contrast? Well, let me tell you what it is not. First of all, Jesus is not giving a contrast between himself and Moses. Many believers, even commentators, make that mistake. And when you do so, as I said before, you're making the same mistake that the Pharisees did with Jesus. They pitted Moses against Jesus. They were constantly coming to Jesus with this mock pious attitude and saying, now Moses in the law said thus and thus, but what do you say, Jesus? They were constantly trying to pit Moses against Jesus. They weren't interested in learning anything. They wanted to trap him. And so it's really sad when some believers and some commentators create the same fight. For example, and you've probably never heard of this guy, but some of you have, the well-known commentator William Barclay, who sometimes gets it right and sometimes is way off. He really is off here. Barclay says, Jesus quotes the law only to contradict it and to substitute a teaching of his own. Uh, I hope you smell a rat. There's a huge temptation out there in even evangelical circles to say that Jesus introduces with the Sermon on the Mount, and especially with this verse, he introduces a new code of ethics. Don't fall for that one. Even unsaved writers and theologians who do not believe in the deity of Christ, they do not believe in the blood atonement of Jesus on the cross, they will readily praise what they call the exalted ethics of the Sermon on the Mount. Mahatma Gandhi did. But when you disregard this as exalted ethics, Jesus is not flattered. He's not honored. Did you know that Satan doesn't mind if people pretend to honor Jesus as a great teacher or a great example? He's fine with that. Just don't fall down and worship Him. Well, what is the contrast between? If it's not between Moses and Jesus, what is the contrast between? It is between, are you listening, the false representation of the Pharisees about the law and the true teaching of the law. And we need to hear this again. That's the real contrast. Jesus said, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time. Notice he did not quote from the Old Testament. Whenever Jesus quoted from the New Testament, he said something similar to this, it is written. He didn't say that here. He said, ye have heard that it hath been said. People do the same thing today. Make the same miss. um, interpretation or conclusion, misquoting like Paul's words in 1 Timothy 6 verse 10. How many times have I heard people say, well, you know, the Bible says that money is the root of all evil. No, it doesn't. It says the love of money 
is a root of all kinds of evil is what that means. Big difference. Big difference. We emphasized last Sunday how the Pharisees undermined the authority of Scripture by, in several ways, three ways we pointed out, but the first way was they exalted tradition. Jesus really nailed them for that. Oh, how they loved to quote the rabbis. They loved to appeal to tradition. Now, the Sadducees, the liberals, on the other hand, they exalted reason above revelation, but the Pharisees exalted tradition above revelation. And in doing so, Jesus said, you, by doing that, you reject the commandment of God. You make it of none effect. I don't want Jesus to say that about what I'm saying today. Furthermore, the Pharisees took advantage of the ignorance and the gullibility of the common people. Maybe you're aware of it, maybe you're not. But from the time of the Babylonian captivity, the Jewish people as a whole had ceased to speak pure Hebrew. When they came back from the 70-year captivity, they spoke Aramaic. Not knowing Hebrew, they could not read the law of Moses in their Hebrew Scriptures. So who did they trust? Who were they dependent upon? With the oral teaching in the synagogues, the scribes and the Pharisees who knew Hebrew, who preserved Hebrew. So Jesus really did hit the nail on the head here when he said, ye have heard that it hath been said, because it's what they heard every Sabbath in the synagogue. And what they heard was not the law. What they heard was the glosses and the tweaks and the revisions that had been perpetrated on the Old Testament Scriptures by those they trusted as the custodians of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees. So the result was that what these people regarded as the law was in reality just a set of interpretations and traditions of men that had been added to the law down through the centuries. Uh, before I get any more technical, instead of getting technical, I'll put it that way. Could I just stop here and say, beloved, if you don't take away anything else I say this morning, please remember this. Read the Bible for yourself. Read the Bible for yourself. Don't trust Dr. Bottlestopper. I don't care if his last name is Bradenburg. Be like those Berean Christians who heard no less a personage than the Apostle Paul, but they still, after they'd heard him preach, they diligently searched the Scriptures daily. They didn't just get together once a week. They searched the Scriptures daily to see if those things were really so. You say, how can I do that? Well, you can do that because you have the all-sufficient teacher if you're saved, the Holy Spirit. The contrast here was with Jesus' claim. The contrast of what the Pharisees said about the law is contrasted with Jesus' claim. He said, but I say unto you. Jesus is the one speaking. Notice he claims to speak as God. He sets himself up as the authority. He's not correcting Moses. He is authenticating Moses against the false interpretations of the Pharisees and the scribes. But even in his solidarity with Moses and the law, 
Jesus makes it clear that He, the Son of God, listen carefully, is the Lord and the giver of the law. Did you ever stop to think about that? Who gave the law? You say, Moses. Uh, 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 uh. No, the, the law was given by Moses, the King James says. It literally means through Moses. Moses did not give the law. The law was given through Moses on Mount Sinai. I believe the giver of the law was Jesus Christ. Think about it for a moment. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. Who's him who is invisible? Jesus. And one of the greatest things Moses endured was what he experienced on top of Mount Sinai with the thunderings and the lightnings and the whole mountain on fire. If you don't think that was something to endure, be careful you don't ask for it. Moses was unable to esteem the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, the Bible says. Moses proclaimed Christ to be king in Jeshurun. That word Jeshurun is used four times in the Old Testament, especially in Deuteronomy 33, verse 5. It's a term of endearment for Israel. Christ loved Israel. Christ accompanied them through the wilderness. He was the rock from whence the water came. Moses didn't give the law. The law was given through Moses. Jesus gave the law. He was the king on Sinai, just like he was the king in the, in the temple that Isaiah saw, as we heard that wonderful message from Brother Coffey a week and a half ago. Isaiah chapter 6. Now, there are three implications of this great contrast that I want you to take away. I, I, I run the risk of going too deep. I know that. But you all look intelligent this morning. And I hope you had a good night's rest. And I hope you're taking notes. If you don't get something, you can go back and look at the podcast, listen to it, okay? If the Berean Christians did that with Paul, I hope you'll do that with me. Here's some implications. Number one, it is the spirit of the law that matters, not the letter only. The spirit, and I don't mean the Holy Spirit, that's not what's meant there. That 2 Corinthians 3 verse 6. May I just say, it is the very nature of sinful man to focus on form rather than content. Upon the letter rather than the spirit. That's what the Pharisees did. That does not mean, however, that the letter is not important. We have swung to that extreme in our fundamental circles in recent years. I'll say more about that in a moment. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 23. He rebuked them for being so fastidious about tithing little insignificant herbs, mint and anise and cumin. My wife keeps an herb garden. It'll hopefully get revived here soon with spring. And when she wants to go get, she wants to season something with mint, she just goes out and cuts off a spring. Boy, that stuff smells good. And the Pharisees would just make sure they gave 10% of, you know, they'd take their little culling knife. They were going to tie the little bits of herbs and spices. Jesus said, you're so fastidious about that, but you neglect the weightier parts of the law, which are what? Judgment, which means justice, 
mercy, showing mercy, faith, exercising faith. And do you remember his inspired conclusion in that same verse, Deuteronomy 23, verse 23? He said, these ought ye to have done. What's that? The justice and the mercy and the faith. These ought ye to have done and not to have left the other undone. The tithing, the letter of the law. But what have we seen in fundamental circles in the last few years? He's seen something happen that greatly concerns me. And I probably won't be popular for saying this. But I love you folks. I want to warn you about what's happening in our day. We have rightly reacted to being overly hung up on some outward standards. I remember preachers that every time they got up the pulpit, they were talking about long hair on guys and pants on women and uh, the outward standards, the way we dress and amusements and going to the movies. And Hey, I'm old enough to remember that. And often neglected was the matters of the heart. Love for God. Having faith in God to answer our prayers. Growing in grace and knowledge. So make sure you understand me. But again, I submit to you, have perhaps we overreacted? Have we grown careless? In our day, in those areas that might be considered the letter of the law, which need to flow from the spirit of the law, which is far more important. Jesus said, these ought you to have done and not to have left the other undone. Please don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. It alarms me what I'm seeing nowadays. Oh, dads and moms, please be careful with your kids. Don't let them accept the standards of the world that are not right and not modest. Don't throw off standards of modesty and separation from the world and conscientiousness and things like tithing and fasting, even keeping a prayer list. We've, we've studied that matter. We know that that can be a, a legalistic thing, but it can also be a good thing. Because sometimes when we just throw off all those outward standards, we think we are flaunting our liberty in Christ. Let's be careful. What did Jesus say in John 14, 15? If ye love me, keep my commandments. Do those commandments affect our outward behavior? Do those, do those commandments, should they affect our dress? Should those outward commandments affect what we listen to and watch? I agree with the statement that is often said from this pulpit, it's not about rules, it's about relationships. And uh, rules without relationships translates into rebellion. Yes, but the one with whom we ought to have the closest relationship said, if you love me, keep my commandments. I heard two amens. Thank you. There will be some sincerely held convictions and rules that we will impose upon ourselves so that our love for Christ will not wax cold amid the general decay around us. Are we living in a revived state? Are our churches in a revived state or are they worldly? If they're in a revived state, let's forget all this talk about standards. If they're not, maybe we better give some earnest heed to them. A second implication, 
And that is the law must be regarded positively as well as negatively. What is the ultimate purpose of the law? We talked about that last week. The immediate purpose of the law is conviction, for by the law is the knowledge of sin, Romans chapter 5, verse 20. But the ultimate purpose of the law is found in Galatians, where it says the law is our schoolmaster, our tutor, to bring us to Christ. Jesus is saying here that the law's purpose goes much further than just to avoid hurting ourselves. Avoid that which is negative. It leads us to Christ, who is the lawgiver, and whose righteousness we need. And we need to love Him. And so Jesus gives us here six illustrations of that. Whereas the Jewish conception of the law was pretty much a negative one, I must not commit murder, I must not uh, commit adultery, I must not swear with an oath, so and so forth and so on. Christ is saying that merely avoiding that which is sinful is not enough. We must be lovers of righteousness. As He said in the Beatitudes already, we must hunger and thirst after righteousness. Otherwise, we're no better than the scribes and the Pharisees who were content with just an outward, purely mechanical and negative code of conduct. The law must be regarded positively as well as negatively. The third implication, and I hope we'll understand this one, the ethical instructions of the Bible must not be regarded as ends in themselves. There are ethics taught in the Bible. But remember, God is not pleased with mere outward conformity. He is aiming for our hearts. And if all we render is outward conformity, we're just like the Pharisees. This was a lesson that Jesus tried to drive home with the man we refer to in the Gospels as the rich young ruler. He came to Jesus seemingly sincere and said, good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? If I had somebody come down the aisle and ask me that, I think, wow, this guy's ready to be saved. Whew, let's take him through the Roman road as quick as possible and get him his name signed on the card. Jesus wasn't so quick. Jesus knew his heart. And we don't know people's hearts, but I tell you what, when we apply the sword of the Spirit, when the Spirit of God leads us, we'll do the same thing Jesus did, and the Spirit of God will put His finger on the sore spot in the life. And that's exactly what happened. When Jesus just started reciting the second part of the Decalogue, the, the, ten, the part of the commandments that deals with man's relationship with his fellow man, and without batting an eye, this man responded by saying, all these things have I kept from my youth up. Well, had he? No, outwardly maybe, but not inwardly. Had he always honored his father and mother? Show me a man who has. But Jesus didn't take issue with him. He didn't say, you're lying. Jesus just took him on his own ground, and he said, okay, well, if you've, if you've kept all these things from your youth up, and, and you really keep the commandments, and, you, and the summation of the second table of the law was thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So Jesus said, if you really love your neighbor as yourself, it won't matter whether you have your money in the bank account or your neighbor has it. So go sell your possessions, just give it all away to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven and that's where it counts because that's where moth and rust doth not corrupt. That's where thieves do not break through nor steal. Simple? Yeah. Easy? Uh-uh. 
This man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He was greedy. That was his greed, his avarice was his God. Jesus aims for the heart. He goes for the jugular. And I challenge you, instead of asking yourself at the end of the day, as you take inventory of your life, which I hope you do, instead of saying, have I broken any of the Ten Commandments, why don't you ask this question? Have I loved Christ with all of my thoughts, my imaginations, my impulses, my desires, and my zeal? As the law itself must not be thought of as an end in itself, neither must the Sermon on the Mount. Please do not do with this inspired sermon. I'm not talking about the one I'm preaching today, but the one I'm preaching from. Please don't do with this inspired sermon what the Pharisees and scribes did with the old moral law. These implications are so important. We need to work through them in our day. But with the remaining time, I want you to direct your attention to the immediate context where Jesus is dealing with the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, which forbids murder. And he gives here both a rebuke and a warning, a rebuke and a warning. Beginning in verse 21, Jesus really begins what is a, an exposition of verse 20 that we already referred to. This is, this is the peak verse, verse 20, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, what was deficient about the righteousness of the Pharisees? If it barred them from the kingdom of heaven, that was a pretty serious deficiency, would you say? Well, here in these verses, Jesus proceeds to give six examples, beginning with the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill as the first example. And the first thing he does is he gives a rebuke for the way the Pharisees minimize the severity of the sixth commandment. In verses 21 and 22, if you look at them, ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Rekha, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. You say, Pastor, I don't see where the Pharisees were minimizing the severity of the Sixth Commandment. They, they weren't saying it was okay to murder. I mean, the, the Pharisees, with all their faults, they, were out, they weren't out to kill anybody. Uh, 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 the very one they were talking to, they were out to kill. Jesus. So something must have been very defective in their understanding of Scripture if they could justify that. They tried to justify it by accusing him of blasphemy. Now, why were they guilty of minimizing the severity of the Sixth Commandment? First of all, they restricted it to murder. Verse 21b, thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. What's the judgment in view here? The judgment was that of a local court. And so the Pharisees had made this matter of murder a purely legal matter. It's kind of what we do. They did not mention the judgment of God at all. As long as a man didn't get caught and convicted by a local court, he was good. Didn't matter what God saw. This guy down in South Carolina that 
He's accused of killing his wife and son. A whole lot of people are following that, following that, and man, he's a, an attorney. He he's pretty clever. But if body language means anything, he's guilty of sin. And it's all going to come out, I guess. But even if it doesn't come out, God knows. And that's what counts. The Pharisees justified their loose interpretation here because they had joined the Sixth Commandment with Numbers 35.30, which demanded capital punishment to murderers. Here's what Numbers 35.30 says, Whoso killeth any person, the murderer shall be put to death by the mouth of witnesses. And they just assumed that the only prohibition that God had in mind was outright murder, that which was legally determined to be murder. But I ask you, and Jesus asked this, I think, is that all murder is? Is it nothing but the act? Suppose a man wants to kill somebody, but he lacks opportunity, or he's too much of a coward. He's afraid to get caught. He can't bring himself to pull the trigger. Does that get him off the hook as far as God is concerned? Oh, no. And Jesus opened a can of worms here with the Pharisees. As far as they were concerned, he had quit preaching and had gone to meddling. He rang their number. But secondly, they omitted the root cause. They were guilty of restricting this matter of murder, but they omitted the root cause, which was sinful anger, as we just read the rest of verse 22 for the sake of time. I won't repeat it again. Whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of several things. So here Jesus condemns sinful anger. He qualifies it with the words without a cause. I know some translations don't have that verse, but even if it belongs there, and I believe it does, it doesn't really minimize the impact of what Jesus is saying. There are some things we need to get angry about. There are some causes for anger. There is such a thing as righteous indignation. I'm glad Jesus got angry at times. Our problem is we're so sinful by nature, it's hard for us to get angry at the right thing and to the right degree for the right reason. Usually we are excessive. He says, whosoever shall say to his brother, Rekah shall be in danger of the council. First of all, he says, if we're angry without a cause, we're in danger of uh, of execution. That's the same penalty as the civil court meted out, according to Numbers 35, 30. Then he says, whosoever shall say to his brother, Rekah, shall be in danger of the council. What does that word Rekah mean? Well, it's a, it's a term of malicious derision that is equivalent to saying worthless or brainless idiot. I hope you never t- call anybody that. It's an expression of slander and arrogant contempt. Jesus said it is equivalent to murder and renders the perpetrator liable to judgment. But the third example is by far the most serious. Whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. The word here for fool is the word from which we get moron from. It's vilifying a person in really the form of a curse. Vilifying in the form of a curse. And Jesus said that person 
is in danger of Gehenna. Several verses translated hell in the, the New Testament. Gehenna referred to the filthy, vile garbage dump outside Jerusalem where useless, deplorable trash, including the corpses of executed criminals, were dumped and burnt. There was always a terrible stench. You didn't want to be downwind from Gehenna. Jesus said that's where the person who says, thou fool, is in danger of going. So Jesus attacks the sins of anger, slander, and cursing, and equates them with murder. The Pharisees were guilty. But then he gives a warning of judgment. Not only is the angry man who vents his anger in danger of being judged as a murderer, but in verses 23 through 26, Jesus tells us that the sixth commandment covers situations where we know that someone is angry with us. Wow. If that's the case, Christ is really raising the bar on the spiritual meaning of thou shalt not kill. First of all, he talks about those who try to atone for evil by doing good. In verse 23, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, not you have ought against your brother, but your brother has ought against you, leave there thy gift before the altar, go thy way, first be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. God is not going to look the other way just because we put something in the offering plate. I know we don't pass the offering plate anymore, but you get the idea. God's not going to look the other way just because we give an offering in church when we know things are not right with our brother. The words of Samuel to Saul apply here, to obey is better than sacrifice. What are we to do? Just leave your monetary offering, leave it right there on the seat, wherever it is. Go, make things right with your brother. Before you offer a monetary gift or any other sacrifice, offer the sacrifice of a broken heart. That's the thing God is well pleased with. As much as lieth within you, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, live peaceably with all men. It is incumbent upon us, are you listening very carefully? It is incumbent upon us to take the moral high ground if we know that our brother has a, a burr in his saddle toward us, even if our conscience is clear. I'm talking where we live, folks. I'm talking where all of us live. Because I believe if we all practice this, in all seriousness and honesty, revival would break out at Friendship Baptist Church. Failure to do this is what quenches the Spirit in our worship. Say, Pastor, good night. You urge me to come to church, and then when I finally get here, you tell me to leave. I know I'm hard to please. But seriously, let's get honest and serious about dealing with bitterness in the home, in the extended family, in the church, in the wider body of Christ. I won't ask you to raise your hand because it would be terribly embarrassing. How many of you have people related to you 
and you have never spoken to them in years. As far as you're concerned, you hope you never have to. That's murder. As far as God is concerned. And then Jesus pronounces judgment upon those who instinctively justify themselves with God. My time is gone. Well, I will read verses 25 and 26. Agree with thine adversary quickly whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Jesus said, Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. When God is our adversary, we better come to terms with him right away. Amen. If God has a controversy with us, put it down, we can't win. We're not going to win. So let's not try to justify ourselves. God is serious about this matter, whether we are or not. He says, well, that when you're in the way, do it quickly. It's an urgent matter. This is not just about our relationship with our brother. It affects our relationship with God. Oh, how pride blinds us. Beloved, let's learn to keep short accounts with God and maintain true humility before Him. Did you know that you can't be right with God and wrong with your brother at the same time? Did you know that you can't hate your brother and love God at the same time? Did you know that both bitter water and sweet water cannot spring from the same fountain? This extraordinary righteousness that Christ demands in the Sermon on the Mount, God demands it, Christ preached it, begins with, of all six of these things mentioned, it begins with love. As we read in the book of James, love is the fulfilling of the law. When you love your neighbor, you're not going to covet what he has. When you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal from him. When you love your neighbor, you're not going to lie about him. When you love your neighbor, you're not going to commit adultery with his wife. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Let's pray. Oh God, help us not to quickly dismiss these searching words from the lips of our Savior just because we've never committed the outward act of murder, never been convicted. Would you convict us, Lord? That's what counts. Would you convict us of our, of our sinful anger? Would you convict us of our lack of love? Oh God, help us to search our hearts and through our brokenness, may the power of the Holy Spirit be made manifest to a skeptical world. Because you tell us, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. Not because of our knowledge of the Scriptures. Not because of our persuasiveness. But because we have love one for another. Holy Spirit. You're the one who sheds abroad this love in our hearts. Would you do that right now? We look to you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.